Welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and on this podcast, we have explicit, honest conversations about every facet of human sexuality. Come on over to PleasureMechanics.com, where you will find our full podcast archive. And when you are ready to get started with us, go to PleasureMechanics.com slash free to enroll in our free online course, The Erotic Essentials. On today's episode, I am thrilled to welcome back our friend and teacher, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Dr. Solomon is a licensed clinical psychologist and trains other couples therapists and sex therapists. She is also on faculty at Northwestern University and is the author of two books, Her first book is called Loving Bravely, and her second book is Taking Sexy Back. And Dr. Solomon first joined us on this podcast for episode 366 to talk about that book. And we just love Dr. Solomon's approach to what she calls relational self-awareness, how we become aware of ourselves in relationship to others and our culture at large and use that self-intimacy to deepen our relationships with ourselves and with those we love. So when she recently launched an online course called Intimate Relationships 101, we enrolled right away, and Charlotte and I have been spending a lot of time in the course, both on our own and together, and we're both having a lot of mind-blowing aha moments, and it's really breathing new life into our relationship. Um, We needed this refresher in year 15 of our loving relationship to bring us more into alignment with each other, ourselves, and our values. So we were so thrilled by this offering. The course is so beautiful and generous that we asked Dr. Solomon to come on the show and talk to us about relational self-awareness and why, especially now, after this year of the pandemic and so many overlapping emergencies, especially now is a good time to slow down and reinvest in the things that are most important to us, like our relationships and our relationship, most importantly, with ourselves. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. You can find all of the resources for this podcast episode at pleasuremechanics.com. And when you are ready to explore her course, you can find it directly at pleasuremechanics.com slash 101. That's pleasuremechanics.com slash 101 to explore Dr. Solomon's intimate relationships course and pleasuremechanics.com where you will find all of our resources waiting for you. All right. I am Chris from pleasuremechanics.com. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Cheers. Dr. Solomon, welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. Thank you, Chris, for having me. You are a returning guest, but for folks that are new to your work, can you introduce yourself and the work you do in this world? Absolutely. I often describe my work as existing on the three corners of a triangle, and they are teaching, therapy, and translation. So (laughs) I am a therapist some of the week. I have individual clients and couples at all stages of relationship development. And that work is sacred to me and 
keeps me grounded and um and it's just it's a privilege to do and i teach and i uh, i teach an undergraduate relationship course called building loving and lasting relationships marriage 101 at northwestern that's been part of my life since i was a graduate student i have taught marriage and family graduate students um to do therapy and i do a lot of training with therapists out in the world helping helping them understand the modern landscape of love. And then the third corner is translation. So I am, my whole career, I have been passionate about taking what happens inside the ivory tower, what happens behind the therapy door and translating it into tools and understandings for, you know, for regular people, (laughs) for the rest of us. And so that relationship and sex education part has been uh, important and it shows up in the books that I write, the e-courses I create, the conversations that I have, um, including this one we're about to have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And last time you came to the podcast, we were talking about taking sexy back. Um, this conversation, we're going to be focusing around a framework that's really important to your work, relational self-awareness, and how we can use these tools to deepen our experience of intimacy really in all of our relationships, our marriages, most obviously, but also our families, our friendships, our communities, and also with ourselves. I really love how in your work, you balance all of these perspectives of how we are as individuals, in our close relationships, and within our culture and our society and systems. Um, And I want to acknowledge we're talking about relationships today, and you've been doing this work for over 20 years. We've been the pleasure mechanics for 15, but we are at the end of a really extraordinary year um, where the volume on relationships in general has really been cranked up um, past what a lot of us knew we could hold, quite honestly. Um, So I'd love to start there. Um, What has your learning been this year um, from holding, I'm sure you're holding a lot of people through the process and on Instagram, I feel like you're the therapist for the masses. You're kind of give us those nuggets we need at the right time. Um, What are you seeing in relationships as we come out of this year of pandemic, uprising, insurrection, and so many other unprecedented times? All of the things, right? All of the things. You know, it's, it's, I think what's, what gets challenging for me about naming what I'm seeing is that it's everything all the time and there is no space outside of it, right? This has infiltrated every aspect of our interior and of, as you're naming, like our, our micro relationships, our marriages, our parenting relationships, and then the bigger system. So there's no outside of it. I mean, I think the way we, we make spaces outside of it, right? Hopefully we are finding spaces for humor and silliness and pleasure and escape and imagination. We can create those spaces intentionally. But my gosh, I was I was thinking yesterday, actually, I had you know, a long day of therapy sessions back to back to back. And at the end, I was aware that the, the pandemic and then all of the sort of layers of reproduct, re, repercussion around the pandemic um, were present in every single session. Mm-hmm. And what's challenging as a therapist is, you know, a piece of it is just holding the, the degree of heartbreak and then all the different shades and permutations of heartbreak. That's one part that's hard. The other part is it's also me, right? It also affects me. There are as- every aspect of my own life, my own sense of who I thought I was in the world, what I thought my marriage was about, who I thought I was as a parent is being worked and reworked and reworked. And so oftentimes as a therapist, you at least get like 
an illusion of separateness, you know, that helps you feel like, okay, I have some knowledge in my brain, you know, I have some skills I can work with. This problem that my client is facing is not the problem that I'm facing, but I can use empathy to bridge it. Um, but this, you know, the problems that my clients are facing look a whole lot like the problems that my own family is facing, of course. So it's the first time ever, really, that we've all been in this muck together. And there's something is this profoundly humanizing about that and something that's challenging about that at the very same time. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about those patterns because not just this year, but when we have the privilege of working with dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of people in these different arenas that we work in, we get to see the patterns of people's questions and their struggles. And yet we also see how deeply many people personalize these struggles. So, so many people feel like they are broken when we're all just living in a broken system, for example. Um, we see how people deeply personalize and feel very ashamed or very um, like self-limited by what is really a cultural or social issue. And in your work, you do a great job of teasing that out. Um, how does that appear to you in your work, especially around intimate relationships? And I'm realizing we first, I want to back up a little bit and hear your definition of relational self-awareness, because you call this the meta tool um, that really holds a lot of your different concepts. So can we start there? Yeah, that's a great place to start. <laughs> so relational self-awareness, as you said, it's, it's what I, it's the through line in my teaching, my therapy work, my social media work, my own <laughs> marriage and relationships. Um, it is basically an ongoing, curious and compassionate relationship that each of us has with ourselves, um, where, where we really, again and again and again, take ourselves to be students of our relationships, where we view our relationships as classrooms, so that they're, so that, that each moment holds the potential to show me something about me, to take me more deeply into me. In the service of, in the service of intimacy, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea of like the interior work fuels the relationship work, and the relationship work takes me back into myself in a new and different way. So it's never, there's nothing narcissistic about relational self-awareness. It's not like, oh good, loving you is going to help me understand me. It's loving you is going to help me understand me so that I can love you, right? It's, it, it's always looping back into the relational space. But it's a very different, it's very different than a stance that, that we are at risk of falling into, especially in our intimate relationships and in our marriages, where it's just so easy to focus on the other guy. It's just so easy to talk about how if my, you know, if my partner would just do these things a bit differently, or if he wasn't so like this, this would be easier. It's so, it, it, there's something that's so powerful about how, how deeply into our souls, our intimate partners go that we, it's just, it's very easy to, to just get focused on what they're doing or what they're not doing. And so we don't let ourselves off the hook like that in relational self-awareness. We ask again and again, why, why is that behavior that I see in my partner so troubling to me? What does it remind me of? Where do I go with it? What's the fear that gets activated in me? So it's this process of accountability, but it has to be done with so much gentleness, right? Because none of us, you know, we all come into our intimate partnerships with lots and lots of baggage. And the question is really, 
can the relationship be one in which we get to open up those suitcases and take some items out and share them with each other? And do you think there's an over-focus and over-identification with our romantic intimate relationships? Um, I'm noticing this year a lot of people are realizing they're missing their friends, they're missing their work communities, and they've underestimated the importance of those uh, social networks. And we see that once we lose them a little bit. Um, how does our culture set us up for kind of putting so many eggs in one relationship basket with romance? I think it's such a, I think that's a, a point that's very well made that um, I think, you know, pre pandemic, we were starting to have, um, you know, the, the first time I ever really entertained this idea was reading Stephanie Kuntz's book about a history of marriage. And basically it, it was, you know, to me, my very Western, uh, I'm, I'm white, I'm Midwestern, I'm American, I'm cisgender, I'm heterosexual, so that I have, I have swallowed whole the dominant narrative that, and I'm a woman, so that, you know, the, the, um, the dominant narrative, the, that the intimate partnership is everything, right, that that is really the primary sense of who I am in the world, and it wasn't until I started to look his, historically through Stephanie Kuntz's work and a number of other people's work but that's not how it is in other parts of the world. And that's not how it always has been here. Like as you're naming that there have been other kinds of pairs or bonds that have been more central than intimate partnership. But the, in this context, like the, the context that we're located in and having this conversation and we really have elevated and we expect so much from an intimate partner, um, which in some ways is lovely. Like that's, what, what, what we are able to ask of our intimate partnerships now, I think would make our grandma's head spin, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> like the kind of agency, authority, voice, empowerment, access to pleasure, ability to say yes and no. Like, I think there's something so glorious about the transition that we've made from these like heavily role bound partnerships to soul based relationships. But it's a big ask. It's a big, and it's a big ask in a pandemic and it's a big ask when there's no ability to just head out the door and go hang out with some other friends for a while or hop on a plane and go see a sibling for a few days. So I think it's a point really well taken that relationships were already strained. I think there's now, we are needier than ever given the stress we're under and we have fewer outlets to hold that craving. Mm. How, does it, how does that land for you though? Does that fit with what you're seeing and feeling? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because some people are more together than ever. Some people are more isolated than ever. Um, but I think many of us are feeling into our edges in new ways and noticing the ways that even casually connecting with a friend every Tuesday, because that was in your routine, grounded a certain kind of relationship and care network for you. Um, and I think, again, zooming out to what we see in culture as a whole, um, what we have noticed is that when these roles start stacking and especially after the lusty phase of new relationship energy, when you're asking of one person to be a caregiver to a young child, run a domestic space together, which is really a full-time job, um, both have careers that you're attending to and be then the romantic sexual partner of one another's fantasies, it can get a lot of pressure into one relationship. And as you said, there's something so beautiful about um, emboldening one another 
to ask more of one another and to ask for a relationship that really supports you both as individuals and the space between you. And we have these amazing tools now. Um, and we're going to, at the end of this call, invite folks into a new course you created um, to create self-awareness, to create relational self-awareness um, in domestic relationships and intimate relationships. What are some of the most important tools as you were thinking through this curriculum? Because you are a queen of pedagogy, you're a professor. Um, what were some of the tools that really, because you had to curate this collection um, for couples, what did you really isolate as some of the essential conversations or tools to develop between intimate relationships? It is, I mean, it's just my happy space. Yes. Like when I get to when I get to create a curriculum or a table of contents, like I'm on the on the floor with the note cards and you know, like I love it's like when I was a kid, I would go trick-or-treating just to get the candy home so I could sort it, you know, into piles. Like I just love that process of do these things fit together and what might fit together a bit differently and so it, it is, it's a process I really, um, I really cherish, you know, mm -hmm. doing. And um, one of the things I did was I, I asked, right, I asked my Instagram audience, I asked the people who subscribe to my newsletter, like, what are your central questions? What's troubling? And, um, and then I have, of course, you know, a 20 year history of working and reworking the Marriage 101 curriculum. So in some ways, this new e-course is like Marriage 101 for the grown and sexy, I keep calling it. So it's, it's the, you know, the way I talk to undergraduate students, there are, there are pieces that are, that are for everybody, right? But there are obviously ways I position and language it. So the tools are, um, you know, one thing that is, is really important is, is being able to have ways of um, looking at the past. So one of my favorite parts of the course is the second module where we look at how the past travels with us <clears throat> because it does it so powerfully and and what we do in our intimate relationships so powerfully mirrors what we did in our families of origin um who we needed to be when we were little we are going to bring it so powerfully and so subtly into our intimate partnerships there's no getting around that the best we can do is just be savvy about mm -hmm. it right like just be like ah i'm doing that thing again that I used to do when I was little. Because when I was little, I actually had to do it. I had to, whatever, self-soothe because there was nobody there. My parents were overwhelmed and we didn't have a language for emotion. So here I go again, shutting down, retreating, acting as if I can't turn to you. Okay, now that I notice that, what can I do differently? So that's, that's my favorite part is like helping people figure out how do you name your original love classroom, which was which was our, our family, whatever our family system looked like, we were internalizing thousands upon thousands of messages about who we need to be, about gender, about power, about emotion, about difference, about frustration. And it's a it's a huge network inside of ourselves. Um, I call it a love template, right? It's there inside of us, but it's been downloaded and it's largely outside of our conscious awareness. So my most exciting challenge is figuring out how do you make explicit what's been implicit? How do you make conscious what's been unconscious? 
um, and it's not ever about blaming our parents. I certainly don't want any of us to get stuck in a victim's hands. And I know, I mean, as a parent and you're a parent, like I know that parents are trying to do the best that they can do at the level of awareness that they have during the time that they are parenting, you know, and responsible for these little, these little beasts that are just, it's such a huge responsibility to have a small person's well-being, you know, in your hands. So I think that our parents can both have done the best they could do and have left us with tremendous gaps and tremendous wounds that, that require our attention um, and our relational attention, right? So it's, who we, it's what we get to do in our intimate partnerships then is care for each other's little kids. Not that we're responsible for them, but we get to have the chance to at least not hurt them anymore. I want to pull on two words you just used and connect them, the attention and the care. Because one of the things you do so beautifully is in this process of self-awareness, you invite that awareness to be kind and compassionate and understanding of the societal conditions which created your individual experience. Um, and that I was saying to you before the interview started, Charlotte and I have been spending a lot of time with your course and we're having some of these aha moments that we kind of needed someone to like hold up a loving mirror for us and say, this is normal. And because it's hard, doesn't mean you're broken. Um, so thank you for bringing so much kindness to this work, because as we excavate this, there can be grief and mourning for, as you said, our childhood, um, and some of the survival tactics we had to develop. Um, I also want to just present in sexual trauma because a lot of couples, when they get to this point of doing this work together, sitting down either with a couples therapist or with a course like this, um, they're going to start excavating together and may hit edges that they haven't fully addressed as couples yet. Um, how do we create a space, a relational space, both that relationship with ourselves and between us, where we can push ourselves, come up to our edges, we call it riding the resilient edge of resistance where change is possible, um, in the most loving way so we can keep going and we don't create contractions or um, really strong uh, some of our people say when they start doing this work, their partner gets overwhelmed and are like, I can't meet you here. And they go way, way away. Okay. And they're actually further away than when they started. How do we work that edge together? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, yeah, I, I think it's such what you're naming is, is really important. I think one of the, um, I think because of that sense of like, why didn't I have this years ago? I think sometimes we can dive in with both feet and because it's painful, <laughs> we can want to work harder and faster to get to the other side of it. And so I think part of it is just um, naming really explicitly and gently to ourselves and each other that this will be our work forever. This will be, our, we, there's, there's no, there's not an other side that we're trying to get to. I think that can yeah. help us with the pacing, especially around sexual trauma, for sure. Because any of that work has to be, as, as you know better than just about anybody, it has to be so grounded in the body and the body has such wisdom and our bodies are so good at telling us when enough is enough. And when we start, and that's part of the healing from sexual trauma is noticing what are, what are my tells? What are, what are the ways that my body shows me that it's enough for right now? 
And it's by recognizing our body's tells and, and saying, this is enough for right now. I'm going to need to shut it down. That process is the way that we start to tell our bodies, I've got you. I've got you. And we're not going to, we don't have to retreat all the way, but we can step back for now and we can come back again another time. Um, and that there doesn't have to be this urge. I think sometimes, I think noticing the urgency and, um, and reminding ourselves that this is like, this is our forever work. So we don't have to have it done in a day or a week or a month. Do you see the dynamic a lot where one partner is more eager to engage and to create change um, and one partner becomes very reluctant or hesitant? Absolutely. Yes. Mm. So much so that one of the videos in the course is literally called how to invite a reluctant partner into the work mm. because it is, and I didn't, you know, four years ago when I, when my, I, the first book, Loving Bravely came out, I would not have been able to tell you that that would be the question that I get all the time. And I, and I'm curious to hear, but I suspect it's a question that you get all the time as well. The, you know, intimate partnership bridges all kinds of differences, right? Personality differences, cultural differences, age differences. And that's a, an incredibly common difference around interest in and readiness for self and relationship work. It's a very common difference. It's oftentimes, you know, when a couple is heterosexual, it oftentimes is um, she's the one with her foot on the gas pedal and he's the one with his foot on the brake, um, which I think fits with um, both how we've burdened, you know, um, uh, the feminine with responsibility for relationship and how we have taught the masculine to fear it and to equate it with weakness. So it's not surprising that you, we see it often that way, but it's bigger than that. Go I want to slow that down for a minute because I think it's really important for okay. people to hear that this dynamic is really common. Um, and as you said, some of it is the female socialized partners wanting to do the fixing and um, the caregiving work of intimate building. But sometimes, you know, we have this idea that men are always eager for sex and what's the next adventure um, but when presented often with the opportunity to build skills in the intimate realm or try something new, that fear of, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm not going to be good at it, it means I'm already a failure, I'm going to check way the hell out, comes up for our guys all the time. Um, but what also comes up for men is this myth that sex is supposed to be easy, that they're supposed to be ready and eager for it. And if they have their own hesitations or they have their own anxieties or their own traumas, and there's so much new dialogue about this, about what's happened to our boys, um, but they feel very little space to have their own needs or wants or boundaries. So you talk about this somehow of creating a place where we can get beyond uh, your TED talk, which we'll link to in the show notes, really calls out heteronormative culture, which I love that you do. You know, we've been doing that as, you know, the queer sex educators for a long time um, and inviting heterosexual people yeah. to queer their sex lives. Like, let's get more creative. But you really call it out for the, the stress and damage and pressure it puts on people. Can you talk about, like, what is another option if you're in a heterosexual relationship? What is beyond mm. the script? Oh, my God, all of the good things. <laughs> <laughs> not losing who you are yeah all right that's right I mean what's beyond the scripts is a kind of 
like fluidity and flow, as you're saying, like when we, when we entertain the possibility of queering all kinds of aspects of relationship and dropping the fact that because my body has a penis, all these things must be true. And because I've been socialized as a woman, all these things must be true. And they get, I mean, it's just so painful. I think it's, it's, they get leveled as weapons, right? This, um, like the scripts get weaponized. Like I think there's, I think a lot of, I, I feel like more and more, a lot of my work is around helping, helping women become really mind, women who are partnered with men, um, be really mindful of the ways in which the patriarchy seeps in and thins out their perceptions of their men and their expectations of their men and their narratives about their men. Um, and of course, inviting and encouraging men to become critical and thoughtful of the ways in which they've been sold a bill of goods. Um, and that I hear you completely that to, to, you know, the moment that the story is, I should always want sex, what the hell do you do with the fact that you don't want sex or your body isn't cooperating the way the culture has told you a, a good, strong, healthy male body should cooperate. So I, I really explicitly just name the dominant gender paradigm as I know you do in your work because we can't, we can't get past it until we've named it and looked at it and called it what it is. Yeah. It's another one of those moments, the aha moments of looking at it and asking, are these my values? When did I consent to this? Um, and a lot of the straight women I know are, are, you know, these past few years have been really um, amazing, I think, for the momentum behind sex culture changing for all of us. So I'm hopeful. I'm curious, you know, and I think, again, this is an area that's getting stronger. But traditionally, even sex therapists weren't trained very well in the area of sexuality. And you've taken upon yourself to become a bit of a nerd about it and geek out about sexuality and how it really shows up for us in our bedrooms. Um, and it shows in all the ways you talk about relationships because it's, uh, it's, it's very sex aware. Um, what are some of the things along your own education of educating yourself as a professional in this field that have been critical to your understanding of who we are as sexual beings? Mm -hmm. One part of it is just understanding the history. Like I, you know, we, we only know the world that we grew up in, but I know that when I was in graduate school, I was you know, trained by some of the sharpest minds in the field, but I did not, I never had a class on human sexuality as I was training to, to, to work with couples. And, um, and what I was taught is that if you get the couple to fight less, you know, and use better communication skills, the sex will follow. You don't have to ever directly target sex. It just, it will take care of itself. And I think that reflects this like bifurcation in the field. And then as I learned a bit more about the history of sex therapy, as you're saying, it's a, the history of it was a, a very much like a very mechanical. Um, I know you were the pleasure mechanic, but your, your toolbox is big and rich and multiple. But I think those original mechanics were less, you know, really focused on like the parts and what the parts were doing. Were they up and down wet or dry, you know? And, um, and so I love that, that like by knowing that, it's really cool then to see now the ways in which um, I think we do a lot more integration in our field. Um, it's a big part, I think, for anybody who's becoming a couples therapist, like really challenging themselves to understand sexuality is essential, right? So one of the things that I 
um, talk about when I'm training graduate students is normalizing that as you're getting to know a couple, you are asking right away, right off the bat, early on in the work about their sexual relationship and not just how often do you do it, right? Because that's that's where we are at risk of going is like as if the quantity tells you, you know, any anything particularly interesting about the story. But at least if a couple's therapist is asking a couple in the beginning, you know, even that question is better than what, what couples therapists often do, which is don't ask about it until the couple brings it up. Well, a couple's not going to bring it up unless it's being modeled as it's okay to talk about this in this space. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really important, I think, for couples therapists to take the lead, even if they aren't formally trained, ASEX certified sex therapists. That's a part of the work. To work with an intimate relationship is to be curious and to normalize it. That's a facet that belongs in a, in a healing space. Hmm. And were there any paradigms from the sex education field that really um, were aha moments for you and that you feel like you've worked in? Like, what do you want all couples to know about sexuality? Uh, I mean, it's like, I feel embarrassed about how little I understood about about mm. female pleasure, right? That I that that I had to take it upon myself, you know, well into my like journey in this field to like understand. And I think, I mean, in part, like I say, embarrassed, and I am embarrassed, but I'm also embarrassed that that the science wasn't hadn't been done until recently, right? The fact that we we hadn't mapped the full anatomy of the clitoris until very, very, very recently that we have acted as if a female orgasm is a, something mysterious and elusive rather than you just ask those with a clitoris and a vulva to talk about their experiences. They can tell you what many of them, some of them can tell you what feels good. And this idea that we don't get answers to questions that we don't ask. So that really, and I, yeah, so that's, that's a, that the, I think that's been an important piece of learning and learning about for those for penis body people, I, you know, to, to just understand the, the amount of pressure that is felt as a side effect of that heterosexual script, you know, the pressure mm -hmm. to get an erection at the right time and have it for long enough and come at the right time, but not too soon, but not too late. You know, it's just, it's just so thin, right? Mm -hmm. The narrative is so thin. Mm -hmm. There's a moment in your course where you talk about like when two becomes three and what happens to couples when a child comes into the picture. And this is one of the moments where you talk about the monitor. And the monitor is one of those concepts that we learned from Emily Nagoski's work. And Charlotte and I now use it all the time of kind of mapping where our expectations are creating suffering versus what is real right now and what we can sink into. Can you talk about how expectations and how we internally in our brains kind of think about something then creates our lived experience of it? Um, and, you know, the example of the 70% of parents who experience a decrease in happiness versus the 30% that have talked about it in advance was just one of these mind blowing <laughs> moments for us. <laughs> What is that about? I know we do the same thing around the birth of a baby that we do around wedding. You know, we think about wedding, what there are lots of parallels between wedding culture and new baby culture, right? Where we focus really heavily on the aesthetic. And I think the volume is up to 11 in the age of social media. When every, you know, when a couple gets married, they have to create a hashtag. We don't have to create a hashtag, but they're creating a hashtag. They're sort of 
branding and curating their wedding, their image as a couple. And that that's a lot. I mean, I am not, I'm very, very pro weddings. I love weddings. I love, you know, I'm not anti any of that. But I'm also pro understanding that a marriage and a wedding are not the same thing at all. And we do it again around babies, right? We get so focused on, you know, things like the gender reveal, which is, you know, a whole separate conversation. And we get focused on the, the, the color of the wall and the crib and, all, you know, sort of, the, again, the aesthetic and curating the image of who will we be now as a, as a family of three and less about the realities of um, like the deeper work, how incredibly confronting parenthood is for us as individuals. There's profound transformation that happens inside of each new parent and profound shifts that happen between parents. But, but we are at risk of um, silencing that when, when the idea is, oh, I guess what we're supposed to focus on are these like adorable outfits and the color of the walls and where we're registered. I guess that's what we're supposed to do. But then what the heck do I do with my, you know, profound worry about my sexuality or what it means to have this little creature who's wholly dependent on me. So that that difference between how I think it should be because the culture has said that versus the lived experience. And whenever there's that gap, shame can just take root. And when shame takes root, nothing really but happens, right? The space between couples erodes. And so talking about it beforehand, as you're saying, we know that from the research that couples who can talk beforehand um, just do better and like getting getting some of those fears on the table having a bit of a conversation about expectations of what we might each be doing the roles we might play what might be difficult for each of us what might be easier for each of us how to play to our strengths you know it's as my husband likes to say this is like a muhammad ali quote or something like it's all well and good until uh, you get punched in the face. Like I think, you know, preparation before before you have a baby is one thing. And then there's like the lived experience of the baby. Like it's all well and good. You know, all the plans in the world, then you get punched in the face and you're, you know, changing diapers at 3 a.m. And it's, it's, but at least then we have at least a sense of, okay, here's what we had talked about. Here's what we anticipated. And, and now it's time to like walk the talk. Mm-hmm. But tell me, I'm so curious how that was for you and Charlotte to, to talk about and how that lands for you. Hmm. <laughs> um, hmm. <laughs> that might have to be another interview. Um, you know, I think that whole section was very personal for us. Um, you know, and I think maybe this section, there was a section called something like twists and turns or plot changes, you know. Um, and for us, we experienced this trifecta of a new baby. Uh, a near fatal illness and a sick mother. Um, and so we have just emerged, you know, we're at year six of our child um, and reinventing ourselves as erotic beings now. And we often hear the six week mark, you know, we're at year six and coming awake again. Um, but we had some conflating circumstances, but often we get these emails about six weeks, you know, it's six weeks. My doctor tells me I'm ready to have sex again, but that is, that's um, one of the, it's almost like a medical harm that I see being done to people. And so I think parenthood, um, illness, financial loss, 
any of these really big changes to our lives that we can never plan for, that we don't see coming. Um, really, you know, it, it turns up the volume on these things that are always true in relationships, that we're in life together. And as a team in life, um, often that team needs support. And one of the reasons we do what we do, how we do it is because we know not everyone can get the individual support of a therapist. We can work towards a culture where therapy is more democratized. Um, but resources like the one you've created in this 101 course, I think are life-changing, life-saving, relationship-saving resources. Because Charlotte and I can sit together um, in the safety of our own home and relationship and triangulate. And we often think about this of like, how do we first externalize and get out of our own heads and neuroses about who we are and our shames, say things out loud. That often helps just that coming into that relational space, but then also triangulate with a wise professional like yourself is such a gift. Um, and we really had the experience of that gift with this course we've been sitting with. Um, and, uh, I'm getting gushier about it than I planned to as we invite people into this course. Um, because part of what you've done is you've made your 101 course available for everyone um, through the power of online courses, through a self-paced course. Um, and then in preparation for this interview, Charlotte and I have spent maybe 10, 20 hours with it. And they've been game changers for us. So first of all, I want to thank you for creating this resource, you know, we are love professionals ourselves and we needed to hear a lot of what was offered. So thank you. Can you tell people about Intimate Relationships 101, um, why you decided to devote so much beautiful time? It's such a generous and ample course. There's so much here. Why did you choose to make this offering at this point? Um, who is it for? because I love that you include um, people who are not necessarily in a marriage. This course is for them too. Um, and how do you invite people to use this course, this resource? I, oh, um, first of all, I, I, I think it's so generous for you to share with your listeners and with me, you know, the, the journey that you and Charlotte have been on into, um, into parenthood and so much of that lands for me. And I hadn't thought of it that way. The six, I do remember after having, um, after both ha having both of our children, the six week mark and what a, and I, I think that you are not overstating to call it a medical harm and that it really, um, and it makes me think about all kinds of things in terms of how we're, how medical professionals are trained around sexuality and gaps there and how much bigger and richer sexuality is beyond penetrative, you know, penetrate. Like I think the six week, six week mark is designed to sort of um, say, you know, penetrative sex is okay as if that is, you know, it's certainly not applicable to all couples anyways, certainly not the, the full experience of what, of how a couple may, start to tiptoe back into an erotic realm, a touch realm, a connection realm, a claiming couple space realm. So I, part of my heart is still back there on, on that share mm -hmm. that you offered. So, mm -hmm. um, and I love, and I think also what you're doing of, you know, the fact that you and Charlotte have been so deeply in this work for all of these years and are still finding benefit in a course like Intimate Relationships 101 speaks to this idea that we don't have to be done 
and that we need different teachers at different moments in time, right? And different resources at different moments in time. So I love that as well. I, you know, I, I continue to be a consumer as well as a teacher. And I think it's all, all of this, all variations of the same, right? Um, but the, this, this course, this e-course, in some ways has been a long time coming because the Marriage 101 course has been uh, popular. Registration's about to open for spring quarter and you know we'll have a hundred spots and I'll get many hundreds of emails of students who can't get in the class and can't get on the wait list. So I think <laughs> I've, and then when there's media stories, you know, it's been, been featured in media around the world and oftentimes mm -hmm. the journalist or reporter will say, Oh, I wish I could take this class. And so I think that I have, or somebody who reads a story will say, why, you know, why can't I take that class? So I think I've spent the last five or so years <laughs> trying to figure out how do I export, right? How do I make this content available? So the books are, you know, some version of that, but this e-course really is the most sort of direct translation of the course into action. I love, I mean, you know, because I love my work, I love to cite the research, an example, and then, okay, how are you going to live this in your life? So that's, that's what the course is. Like, engage your head, translate it to your heart, and then live it. Mm. Like, how are we going to make this applicable to you? So it's, so mm -hmm. the worksheets, you know, every, I mean, there's, right, there's, there's, a, there are videos, and then there are worksheets, and the worksheets are all new, newly created for this course, and they are all about translating this because it's not enough to just have it in our brains it has to be lived in our in our lives and um and the course is for i mean i was intentional in development i want it to be an inclusive space for people of all gender identities and all different kinds of um couplings and i want it to be for people who are at all stages of development so somebody who is single somebody who is single again, perhaps coming out of a, a, a breakup and kind of integrating that loss and preparing to open again to love. And then yeah. for, for couples. So there's, I want it to be a space for, for all of those learners. And it is an exquisite space you have curated. Thank you from the bottom of my heart again. And this is the course that Charlotte and I have been wanting to be able to share with people. Um, you know, it's all of the conversations and all of the aha moments around that relational space between you and the ones you love. Um, and so if you love kind of the pleasure mechanics approach to the cultural and how that becomes personal, um, you will feel right at home under your incredible care. And again, I just want to use that word care um, when we talk about self-awareness, because that is the space you invite us into is so much self-compassion and love and understanding and who we are as specific beings and that we are worthy, inherently worthy of being loved with integrity and respect. Um, you have raised the bar for all of us relationally. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. You are, I, I take all of that and put it right into my heart. Thank you so much. It, it means a ton to hear. I mean, you know, it's a new, the, the course has only been out for a few, you know, it's, it's a new course. So it's all of this feedback is just so delicious to me. Thank mm. you. So if listeners want to join Charlotte and I in this course, and we will be talking about more about the gems we have gathered um, and share the, with, them with our community if you want to join us in the course, you'll find all the information in the show notes page, 
or go to pleasuremechanics.com slash 101, pleasuremechanics.com slash 101, and that will take you right to the course registration. Dr. Solomon, thank you so much for spending this time with us and for all that you bring to this world. We really appreciate who you are. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Mm -hmm. It was a pleasure to be with you.